Hello, and welcome to Too Broad and Too Deep, a podcast where we talk about the Doctor Who Virgin New Adventure novels, starting from Timeworm Genesis all the way through to the dying days. I'm joined by Alistair. Hello. And also, we have a special guest. We have the lovely Jim Chenowden. Jim, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Look forward to this. No worries at all. It's good to have you. It's, yeah, an area which I didn't think had many fans within the fandom, but <laughs> people are coming out of the woodwork to discuss the Doctor Who <laughs> Virgin New Adventures in a way I didn't think they there would be. There are dozens of us. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very good to see. So actually, I was wondering, you know, in terms of the Virgin New Adventures, when did you first kind of hear about these, Jim? Well, I got into the show generally about the time of the 92, 93 repeats on BBC Two. And um, I was probably about four at the time. I remember reading about the new adventures in DWM and really not being interested, to be honest. Uh, I was far too young for them anyway, but I don't remember them being a thing that I wanted to read, I'll be honest. Um, I had plenty of target books and actual telly stories to be getting on with. So, yeah, it just wasn't that fast. But come the time of the TV movie, I was the exact right age to be into it and really wanted more McGann. So I got really into the EDAs. Um, if anyone's doing an EDA podcast, by the way, get me on. Um, <laughs> so I ploughed through those and sort of considered myself to be a Doctor Who book fan, I guess, at that point. I thought, well, you know, teenage me rolls around and thinks, I should probably give these new adventures a go. I've heard so much about them. They've got these really passionate fans online. Uh, so I start picking them up, charity shops, eBay, the like, and... Um, yeah, didn't really get the appeal, didn't really get the... You know, they were fine, absolutely fine, but just sort of plodded through them for a while until I got to Transit. <laughs> transit killed any interest I had in continuing, I'm not going to lie. Um, the problem is I'm a completionist when it comes to things like this, and I couldn't bring myself to skip the remainder of Transit, couldn't bring myself to finish it, and that just stopped my uh, my new adventures journey. Um, I did it a few times after that, so picked up um, Human Nature, um, Shakedown, The Dying Days even, enjoyed them well enough. Um, but then, yeah, it was only actually about last year, early last year, that I thought maybe I should give these another go, give them a fair kind of, you know, um, make my way through the Time Worm books again. And then I think, <laughs> Anthony, you said to me at one of the Riverside events, oh, I'm thinking about doing a podcast about these. So I stopped reading through them and thought... I'll read these when when you do them. It's fun, you know, to be part of the conversation and things. Um, and so here I am now reading the time books for the third time. And yeah, still haven't read anything past transit really. So <laughs> it's a funny relationship I have with the new adventures. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, that's. I think one thing I've had been fearing about this down the line is transit. From any time anyone mentions writ large the Virgin New Adventures, transit is this big monolith down the, down the line that I can see coming. It's, yeah, it's it's very much the kind of New Adventures version of the sensor rights when you're doing the sort of classic series. <laughs> <laughs> it's the bit that people tend to trip up on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, we're here to discuss the second, as you say, book in this series with Time One Exodus, um, written by Terence Dix. It's Terence Dix's first Doctor Who original novel, actually. Uh, I don't think he's done any before that. It was just all those target novels. Did any of you read any of the target novels like beforehand, afterwards? Uh, in oh yeah, yeah. So, um, well, as, as, as my little ramble there, um, yeah, the the target books were my intro to Doctor Who 
pros, I guess. Um, and obviously Terence being the kind of daddy of the Target books in a way. Um, yeah, I was very familiar with his writing style um, before going into this. And, and you can see a lot of it, I think, in, in Exodus. Um, it feels very comfortable to read. <laughs> Aye, there's a... You can tell it's Terran Sticks. It's got his footprints all over it, and that's absolutely fine. We're, we're good with that. I, I do wonder, though, like, what his his draw to this era, in particular, it's like World War Two, kind of is for him in that way. Um, you know, I was trying to see what other alternative World War Two stories were out there, but this came out, I want to say, just before, or just maybe after Fatherland came out, um, which... You know, so it's in the sort of sphere of this almost revival of, of alternate World War Two sort of thinking. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was interesting to have him kind of delve into a more political novel when he wasn't known as the more political person when running the show mm. um, with Barry Letts during that time. Yeah. Oh, but he was a he was a fan of the Nazi stuff though, as he says himself. Uh, he did war games, which had a fair bit of German soldiers through it and all the rest of. Uh, it's, he wanted, he specifically requested the Nazi era and Nazis as characters because he's always found them quite interesting which it does make for a more nuanced version of Nazis than most other writers would do about this kind of time Yeah, it delves into that political sphere quite in a way I didn't expect from him, I think that's what I found surprising Yeah What took me was, I kept reading the names going I think I know that name and I would google it Yeah, that was a real German a few pages later, yep, also a real German. It was, he was spot on in who he was picking to have as the background characters. He was, he'd obviously read. I suppose it's not the most original idea, really, you know, alternate timeline, what if the Nazis won? But I guess that's only really through the lens of reading it now. That actually, certainly in, in Doctor Who terms, you know, in the lens of 1991, this is pretty new territory, I guess. Um Although saying that, if if we think of this as the continuation of the TV series, this is only a few stories after the Curse of Fenric, and as a result, feels a little bit like we're treading quite recent ground. Um, I don't know, quite quite a curious choice, I think, to go back to this era quite so soon in that sense. Well, one thing that he does say within um, he got interviewed in, in Doctor Who magazine um, about it right. uh, in issue one seven eight, and he's talking about where he was getting draw of characterization for people from and he, he basically said he just sat down with a VHS of Gersa Fenric and that was his introduction and indeed whole idea of who the Seventh Doctor and Ace was. I can <laughs> so, do that. <laughs> <laughs> to us, it does have that feeling around it even though it is relatively close in that sphere of a World War Two story it still isn't that sort of style of story from Gersa Fenric, you know, it's, you know Gersa Fenric wasn't about the Nazis in that way, um Although there is a zombie style uh, race as well <laughs> um, of people <laughs> within both, it still has you know its its own sort of take within um, within this era. Yeah, there's definite overtones of Curse of Fenric in the war games in this. It's but that's once again that's fine. Those are two good serials. We're happy to see them retread to a certain extent. And I don't know if in terms of. Now, the book itself, you know, it has alternative timeline as one of the aspects of this era, but it's only one half of that of that book in that way. Um, as the story itself, you know, 
I think actually I'll read the blurb and see how you and indeed the listeners might well feel about how that reflects what we might see. So this is what the blurb says on the book. The pursuit of the time worm leads the Doctor and Ace to London, 1951, and the Festival of Britain. A celebration of the achievements of this small country, this insignificant corner of the glorious Thousand Year Reich. Someone, or something, has been interfering with the timelines, and in order to investigate, the Doctor travels further back in time to the very dawn of the Nazi evil. In the heart of the Germany of the Third Reich, he finds that this little band of thugs and misfits did not take over half the world unaided. History must be restored to its proper course, and his attempt to repair the timelines, the Doctor faces the most terrible dilemma he has ever known. Now, it focuses more so on what I think is a lot of the first half of that novel, in terms of what has changed, um, and a lot of the rectifying side of that isn't really it feels like a different novel almost in terms of what it's trying to to do or where it's set uh, compared to this sort of like almost not quite having fun in a sort of like heart nose historical style the seventh doctor goes around trying to to fit into a nazi society in england but it's a different take compared to when we go back to the 1930s uh, in the second half so, yeah, how did you find each take on terms of having an alternative history and then how we go to try and deal with it in the in the novel? I, I quite like the, um, you know, finding something wrong with history and then going back and fixing it um, aspect. It feels very Moffat-y in a way, I think. Um, in, in a way that I don't think the classic series did a huge amount of. Um, as in just time hopping in the serial generally is a little bit kind of original, I guess, at this point. You get a bit of it in things like Pyramids, Mars, but um, yeah, it's it's an interesting twist, I think. Um, and yeah, uh, the actual alternate timeline, I feel like more could have been done with it. I don't know, it feels a little bit half-baked to me. Um, I get that it's only a handful of years after the war, and so it's kind of been that different perhaps, but I don't know, maybe I'm picturing sort of other films and the like where... You see Zeppelins going around and everything's very different. And like, it just it just felt very kind of close to modern David with a few Nazis hanging around. You know, yeah, perhaps a bit underused. Yeah, Alistair, what did you make of it? Uh, I quite enjoyed the first part. It was nicely done, nicely paced. It gave you just enough smatterings, ideas of like Mosley as prime minister, Edward back as king, and just. It, but Jim's right, it felt very safe in the changes it was making. It was changes that everyone would be aware of and would know. And there was no great <gasps> moments. There was like, yeah, this is pretty much what you'd expect to happen. Happened. Let's move on. But uh, strangely, one of the things I really enjoyed most about it was uh, Hemans, the British convert type officer. He was tremendous fun. He almost felt like an archetypal German villain in an old war film going, I know they're up to no good and I will prove it. And he's the one screaming, they're, at, they're up to something, they're up to something. Everyone's going, no, no, they're fine, they're fine. And he's absolutely spot on, but no one's listening to him. And that was just fun. He was the one lone voice in the wilderness going, this doesn't work. Yeah. 
I read actually after the fact that he was put in as a not quite as an afterthought, but Paul Cornell contacted Terence Dix and went, I need a character I can use in book four. Can you put someone in that I can grab? And that's where Hemings came from. And for essentially an afterthought, he's a standout character for me. I just really, really enjoyed the guy. What a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's good to have that foil, isn't it? Um, the, the the Doctor breezes in so easily in this, and I know it's not a new thing, but like he he takes over and, and becomes like the de facto Reich Inspector so quickly. Um, but to have someone calling him out on this is actually quite nice, quite unique in a way. Um, to have that foil, and yeah, as you say, in a way, quite a standout character in that you know he comes back right, which is which is nice in itself. It's yeah, I I agree about you know. How much of a of a of a foil he he, he became, uh, because he was the only one calling out a lot of this, and I I was sitting and I was like I had to look up when a lower low started, because I found some striking similarities with this and a lower low in certain situations, you know we have that that um, cafe where the resistance is based upon, um, in London, <laughs> where where basically. The Doctor has um, his own Rene moment where him as, you know, in this novel, the Doctor's in disguise as a high-ranking Nazi. He's dressed in, in the big leather coat and a, ho- and a hat. Almost, I, I dare say, like um, Van Smallhausen from Alolo. But there's this aspect when the the chief um, ranking officer um, for the Nazis in the area comes in to try and, you know, arrest everyone. I basically gives a sort of you stupid woman sort of moment <laughs> to the Nazi officer of saying, Don't you understand? I have this secret elaborate plan. Um and it <laughs> it feels like that yeah, there's touches of a low low but set in nineteen fifties London occupied by the Nazis, uh, that I find was quite enjoyable. Even if it's not that deadly serious caricatures uh, that we expect for a more well rounded, you know, gritty take of a of a takeover from the Nazis and well, that's it. Dix steered steered quite clear of the gritty aspect of it because even when Dor- when Ace and the Doctor are in prison, they're about to be tortured. The Doctor kind of punctures it with, "Ah, yes, now they're going to not talk to us for hours and then shout at us. It won't work." And he's just poking fun at the whole, yeah, the whole genre. And that was fun as well. And on that note, can we really imagine any other Doctor dressing up as a Gestapo agent? <laughs> and yes, I can tell from your faces it is uncomfortable. No one's going to lie about that. It wasn't comfortable seeing the doctor dressed up as a Gestapo agent. But if any of them was going to do it, it would have to be the seventh. Yeah, I think you're right. It is uncomfortable. I think it's deliberately uncomfortable, right? Um, that it, it's quite unpleasant having the doctor be pally with Nazis. Um, obviously, in service of the plot, but yeah, it doesn't feel nice to read. Um, and yeah, I guess there's, there's elements of this all throughout the book, right? But uh, the the Doctor is is working with the Nazis for a lot of this book. Uh, you know, not willingly, I guess, to an extent, but like, you know, to make sure that World War II goes to plan. Um, and yeah, that can lead to some quite interesting conflicts throughout the book, I think. Um, you, you see Ace questioning... The Doctor's motives throughout the book a fair bit, I think. Um, and yeah, she, ultimately they end up best friends at the end as usual. But like you can, you can see this sowing the seeds of, of, of later kind of um, 
discontent, I guess, questioning whether the Doctor's actually all that good. Yeah, because Gustavo is never going to be a good look for anybody, let alone <laughs> the Doctor. No. It's, 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 it's in the aid of the greater good, but, you, you know, when, when you've got this hero- supposedly heroic character dressed up as a Gestapo officer, pallying around with, with Hitler and the Nazis and all this, you have to wonder, like, yeah, is, 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 is he actually doing this, you know, in, in, in the right mindset? Is he actually kind of, you know... Because we had the yeah. elements of this in Rosa, when the Doctor had to stand by and let something horrific in mm. history happen, because that's how it happened. But that was, that felt more passive. This was more the Doctor getting in about it. And these ten sticks had the decency to put a few times have the doctor go. I'm going to leave before this affects me too much because this is getting to me. It's like, thank God he's acknowledging it. That's something. On the second half of that novel, especially when he's so involved within the political intrigue within um, the Reich, you know, he's mm. he's playing um, Himmler off of of Gorin, and there's there's a political play that he that basically is his way to try and attempt to resolve. The, the plot at the end essentially um, he uses Gordon basically as sort of this sort of fat Nazi version of the Brigadier to come in and swoop in and save the day <laughs> to, to, to blow up the, the baddies for him I actually stopped at that point and read that paragraph out to Ellie my wife to say like, yeah they're just waiting for Gordon to charge in and rescue them so, so what the hell are you reading <laughs> <laughs> but you know he's, he's just using those elements that you know, as much as we're saying, there's broad strokes of these kind of characterizations. He, he the doctor, still uses that t- to his advantage to try and get somewhere. Like you know, the conspiratorial nature mm. um, of um, Himmler as well. You know, he's he's so in engrossed in, in all these mad myths and legends. You know, he wouldn't be far off from still believing there's ninety seven missing episodes to be found in <laughs> Phil Morris's basement. So there's, you know, a lot of characterization like that that still comes very handy as an agent for the Doctor to use to try and resolve mm-hmm. and, and th- bring things back on track, which which I find quite enjoyable. It, it's interesting in the context of the range, though, that both the first and second books uh, have the Doctor and Ace ally themselves with a unpleasant historical figure for the greater good. Um, comes across as a tad repetitive, perhaps? Um I always have to wonder if there's the, if another book could have been inserted in between to kind of break up the flow a little bit, but yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, that's one thing we haven't, I guess, discussed is you know, you know who he is facing in those historical battles because you know the title of the book is Time Worm Genesis, <laughs> and the Time Worm is barely in this book, no, probably for the better. Um... But I wondered what you thought about the use of the Time Worm within this. Uh, Alistair, how do you find it? Oh, I've got definite views on this one. It's I did not like the idea in the slightest that Hitler was influenced by an alien, alien presence. It was... I think we should say that, you know, the, 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 the Time Worm at the beginning of the novel is in the mind of Hitler. Like, this is how, basically, the Time Worm was not in it as much because it goes into the mind of Hitler and is trapped within his madness. So that's and the idea that, that Hitler that. was a strong enough personality and a strong enough of will that he could harness the time worm to his, to his thoughts and personality was kind of disturbing. It's... I almost felt they could have had someone else have the time worm and have him in the periphery. Having Hitler affected is just... 
he's still too recent, he's still too evil, and a lot of what we were seeing in the book there about normal Germans buying the rhetoric, how easily people were worked up, how often people were manipulated by speeches and such, like how small wars can set things off, it was so very, very relevant to today. And the idea that you wouldn't write a book today and say Putin had been con- possessed by an evil alien, you wouldn't say that Donald Trump was being psychically enhanced, it's... The sad truth is Hitler did that all by himself. It just felt having the time were part of Hitler's psyche and part of Hitler's power set demeaned what happened. And what happened was absolutely horrific. There's no getting away from that. But that's a minor quibble in terms of the whole book, but it still... It doesn't sit well, guys. It does not sit well at all. No. What do you guys think? I made the exact same note, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Definitely not intentionally, right? But it does feel like it kind of excuses Hitler a little bit. <laughs> um, and yeah, in, uh, interesting, questionable, the whole idea of him being so brilliantly minded that he can take this, you know, incredibly powerful alien entity and trap it with his mind. Um, like, uh, I don't know, it just didn't, didn't quite sit right to me. Um, I have to wonder, given as well how little the time ever appears in this book whether Terence just didn't want <laughs> had, had a story in mind to tell and wanted to tell it his way and just kind of got told by you know the editor whoever I just pepper in a few references if he can sort of thing you know um this could this could so easily not be a time one book yeah barely is you know <laughs> what, I can, what I've read he was basically told this is what happened last time and here's where we need it to be by the end which also explains a rather abrupt change of tone in the last third of the book yeah, it's something that just feels arbitrary to what Terence Dix is wanting to achieve with the novel. Um, I, last night, rewatched for the first time since broadcast, Let's Kill Hitler, to see how Hitler has been portrayed in the television show. And there's striking similarity, actually, to what Stephen Moffat does with Hitler, uh, to what Terence Dix does with the Time Worm, because... Moffat just sticks Hitler in a cupboard and we don't see him again. And that's essentially what Ten Sticks does with the Time Worm, of sticking it into this mental cupboard of Hitler's mind. And we don't really see the Time Worm again till the end where we need to ghostbuster it out of Hitler. (laughs) Thank you for that image. (laughs) But, you know, the the Time Worm isn't the only villain I think we should see as well. There is... To add to this, uh, another force, and it's two boys, the one that is driving the issue that I probably have about this demeanness of Hitler, because it's with the warlords and the war chief, and how they are mentally project um, amplifying the, the oratory powers of the doctor, of the doctor of Hitler, I am in such a way that it does, like you say, undermine the natural oratory powers that people believed upon uh, and, and used to their best ability um, to persuade people of anything. And it just felt, yeah, I wasn't a fan of how they were used. And to be honest, as much as it's a key thing that, you know, uh, Tennis Sticks wanted to bring in, um, it was not the best way to do it because the Doctor talks about how it's the Time Worm's not this sort of fine, methodical, methodical sort of person 
to be able to fix and change and alter small bits of a timeline. But the only focus we see of the Warlords and the War Chief is on the the mental projection and amplification aspect, and not on the they're helping in a very particular way with you know a storm during Dunkirk or mm. you know small things that are changing things in the favour of the Nazis on the front or something like that. It's on something that feels undermining of the impact of what the Nazis actually did and how they p- persuaded the German people. So what did you think of the warlords and, and the war chief in, in this <laughs> novel dredged up after, what, 30 years? Uh, 20, no, 23 years or something like that by this time. Um, Jim, what did you think? I mean, does does this book really do anything with the idea of the warlords, I have to ask? Um other than some references to the original serial, this could be any entity meddling in Earth's history, I think. Um, you know, swap out the names and, you know, the little bit of... This this could be the meddling monk, really. Yeah. Perhaps not his MO, but, like, in terms of the, the methods, we don't see anything, really, with regards to the uh, the plot, the, the scheme of theirs that ties them up to the original warlords, I don't think. Um, and, yeah, people have a go at... Eric Saywood for dropping in references to like Terraleptals and Tinklavic Minds and his like more recent novelizations. But this book is just the epitome of that as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, obviously there's, there's the, the obvious one, bringing back the war chief, warlords. Um, but there is a chunk of time devoted to a recap of the five doctors. There are references to Khan and old hermits and Venusian neck pinches and all of Dix's kind of like, you know, favourites. And I have to wonder, given that the first book in this range was a continuity mess, you know, full of full of kisses to the past, should we say, um, is this kind of helping the impression that this range has something new to say? And I'm not sure it really does. Um, yeah, Al- Alistair, how did you how did you find <laughs> that their inclusion in this novel? See, normally, this is all my entirely in my wheelhouse. I love, I love past references, I love working things in, but they didn't feel part of events, and. Even just like, but I saw the war chief get disintegrated. Yes, but this is his son. Okay, that seems like a fairly major <laughs> bit of information that we're going to do what with? Oh, nothing. Excellent. So glad you mentioned it. That could easily have been, oh, but he survived. But no, he felt the need to go for it. It was his son instead. And it was just... only thing of real note I took from it was the fact that the war chief had tried to regenerate and had failed. And there was essentially two bodies squashed together. But it suddenly feels a lot more relevant in the light of bi-generation. Essentially, the war chief bi-generated and got it wrong and carried about his half-decimated corpse with him. <laughs> now, that was a, it's a fairly horrific idea and it's almost glossed over. It's just... I would I would love to see that now, um, you know, if the, the toy maker kept that laser going so that... There'll be suddenly just half of half of David Tennant coming out of half of Shooty Gatwa, like a sort of basket case creature going around <laughs> like that. Um with the two of their bodies stuck together as the new doctor, that would have been <laughs> Well that'd have been different. It would be very different, but they would have been precedent. So that, so fans would have been happy. <laughs> <laughs> Bit his own kiss to the past. <laughs> We're Doctor Who fans. We are never happy. True. <laughs> I didn't like the, the, the of the regeneration bit but that kind of felt like it had been 
Oh, as Jim said, that could have been the, the monk easily enough. It could have been any other Time Lord. It could have been, if the helmet, it could have been their Annie. It could have been anyone. The war chief and their, his cohorts just seemed tacked on. It was basically Dick's going, Hey, remember, I wrote this back in the 60s. Yes, Terence, we all remember. We've all sat through it. It's fine. <laughs> and that sounds dismissive. Yeah. I do enjoy the war games, but it did feel as him saying, Look, I've got credentials. I'm writing this. I'm going to remind you who I am. Which is a shame because the rest yes. of the novel is so well done. It's interesting that that kind of greatest hits approach uh, rears its head again in another book of Terence's, which is the Eight, Eight Doctors, the first book of the, of the EDAs. Um, another book that has nothing original to say, in my opinion, and just kind of, you know, well, I mean, the very format of that is going through previous adventures, but it is a kind of like, you know, checklist of, hey, remember what I wrote back in the day? <laughs> so, he's, yeah, he's got form. <laughs> in his defence, and I feel more comfortable saying Terence Dick's defence than John Peel's defence, the, amount of, the sheer amount of stuff that Terence Dick's has brought is, I think he's maybe earned a few look-at-me-I'm-great moments. It's just... It's a shame it tends to dominate the last chunk of the book. But I would say that he's he's more humble enough to recognise when it didn't work as well because he's, you know, in the book the Doctor talks about how, you know, the Warlords were, it was such a convoluted plan that they were trying to do back then uh, to try and, you know, create the best army by making them fight against each other and, this, you know, he basically ridicules the idea of, of the war games. And then again does it at the end of the novel because he says, yeah, they just tried the same thing again except somehow worse. <laughs> so he's a, he basically kind of recognises, yeah, I, 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 there's not actually really something going here for it, but I'm happy to throw it in for use because it is, who else is going to read it? <laughs> the end of the book, though, there was one standout moment for me and it was a visual moment where the Doctor whistles for the TARDIS and it appears levitating in the air and him and Dorothy, so I keep on Dorothy, that's a, as we portray how far ahead I've read, him and Ace basically stepping up and into the TARDIS. That's a fantastic visual. And not one we'd had anywhere else before in the series. We've had plenty of it now in the new series. Mark Smith basically hovered the TARDIS everywhere, but this was brand new. No one had ever thought to do this with the TARDIS before. And you could almost miss it, because it's in amongst all these big action scenes. And oh, I just loved it. It was nice. <laughs> well, talking of the Doctor and, and Ace... Oh, Dorothy, uh, in this novel as well. I was wondering how folk found their characterisation because, you know, compared to the last book in, in Genesis, I've, where I was just frustrated by how bitter and cold the Doctor was immediately compared to what we had before, I find this Doctor just, you know, solid Seventh Doctor, relatively fine um, compared to what we were having before. Uh, I don't think he was distinctly, you know, plotting and, and mad schemer like we might have had at the end of 20, season 26, but yeah, Alice, I don't know, how did you find the Doctor and Ace in this? Well, closer than last time around, Anthony, certainly. Uh, interesting the two histories for them, because John Peel had seen all the seven thought about actively disliked the Machiavellian aspect of his character. Whereas Terence Sticks had only really seen The Curse of Fenwick and he played that up to the hill and it's... Yeah, this, this daughter's definitely closer to the Doctor we know and love. Even if he does put on a Gestapo coat and shout to people. It's... But even that's strangely in keeping with his resident of slotting in and trying to take control of the situation and 
slightly grim morality. Ace was definitely more like Ace than she had been in the series, was shouting about basically the mouthpiece for 20th century viewers. This is fascism, this is wrong. This, there's no justification for this doctor, and it's like, yeah, 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 she's right. She's the kind of. She's acting like he's conscious in this, and it's welcome, because she's saying all the things that we want to say. Like, what the hell are you thinking? Put the coat down. The monocle was a step too far as well, that's another story. It's just. <laughs> Yeah, Jim. How how did you find it? Yeah, I have to agree. Um, the characterizations are a lot closer to what we saw on the TV. I think um, Dix obviously has an advantage in that he's written for well the Doctor and friend a bunch over the years. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I was looking through my target books just there to sort of say, oh, has it has he written for these characters before? And no, he hasn't. Has he actually? The the Seventh Doctor and Ace. I think the, the the latest sort of chronologically uh, he wrote was was Mysterious Planet. I want to say novelization wise. Um, so yeah, like uh, for for someone who's not actually touched these versions of the characters before, I thought they were surprisingly spot on actually. Um, and and yeah, I think that plays to his strength that he has written for a bunch of different doctors, a bunch of different companions, and can usually find their voice quite well. I think. Um, yeah. yeah, I think yeah, compared to you know how he might have wrote a generic companion, say, in interrogation scenes in Ace. You know, she is very markedly just being Ace, very being cocky, being exactly who she is compared to what he might have done for one of his companions from back in the day. Um, he does seem to get that she is this more active and proactive character. I guess maybe similar to you know him, maybe not been the most political sort of person before from writing. I did notice at one point he's talking about uh, Ace's inner thoughts about politicians and I think it was right in page 87 it was or something where she says to her all politicians were weird and slightly suspect anyway. Why should the Nazis be any different? And that was maybe the one line that I felt was maybe not quite what she was because she's naturally a anti-Nazi, anti-fascist sort of character and for her to be slightly indifferent to think, oh you know, all politicians are the same in that way and I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, because I am a politician but, you know <laughs> <laughs> there's more nuance that Ace had uh, in the series I think when it comes to, to being anti-fascist that didn't quite sometimes shine through in that way, she was just generally um, anti-political idea in that but I think other than that a lot of what her sort of gutsy character is was still there in the book. There was one nice wee meta moment that I quite liked for Ace when she screamed and then went, I'm sorry, that wasn't me. It's like, yeah, correct, you're the one companion that wouldn't scream in the new, in the classic series. So, yeah, that was... Um, yeah, one thought on Ace, and I think this is a, a sign of the era perhaps this was published in, but um, she drops the hard R slur a couple of times <laughs> at one point in the book. And uh, that, that stood out for me, I'm not going to lie. Um... And like I said, maybe it was just 1991 that was more accepted, but uh, oh. yeah, I didn't like that. <laughs> no. But yeah, other, other than that, I think characterizations were kind of spot on in that way. I don't know if there was... I know you mentioned um, earlier of Hemmings, but were there any other side characters than the main ones and, and, and the villains that you thought you know, was had a good sort of innings within this book for yourselves? I quite like Mom and Pop. The resistance that just kind of disappeared. 
What's it been rumbled? They ran for it and were gone, but they were very well realised up until that point. Yeah, I, I, I tried to, when I was writing my notes for this episode to remember what happened to um, Owen Pop, and the answer is kind of nothing, right? That they they seem like they're going to play a really massive role in this book, in this story, and you know the fight against the Nazis in in the alternate timeline, and they they just vanish. Yeah, along with the alternate timeline, right? That um, it, it feels unresolved. It would have been nice when we cut to the end of the book, I think, to perhaps touch base with them and see them living a much nicer life, perhaps, but... Yeah. Uh... Well, yeah, because, I mean, they, they redo that scene with um, Harry Gold, the, the the coffee shop man at the beginning. Um, they kind of redo that scene in the yeah. in the now-fixed timeline, and even just having them, you know, having a coffee there, something like that, or the one, mm. or they're telling off the two um, wee guys that come around to the stall, something like that would have been a nice yeah. way to say they still exist and they, they now thrive in the regular timeline. Although touching on that, I really like the fact that in the alternative timeline it was marked as proprietor gold, but in the fixed timeline it was gold stein. It was quite ah. left hanging there. And that was a nice little touch, I thought. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I think that was it was it was quite nice. Um, but yeah, I guess overall, how did you find? I guess Alistair, compared to our last book, how did you find this overall as an experience compared to Time Bomb Genesis? Overall, I thoroughly enjoyed it. it like I said, I, I staggered a wee bit in the last act, but by and large, it was fun. I couldn't put it down. I read it in pretty much two sittings, which is a lot more sittings and a lot fewer sittings than I did for Time Warm Genesis. That was a real hard slog. It was just fun. Terrence Sticks knows how to write the Doctor, turns out any Doctor, and he kept the pace going, and it was just fun. I can actively remember some of these characters talking to you guys. I was having to look back at my notes for Time on Genesis to go, who was that again? Oh, was there something interesting? It's like, and even now I can barely remember any of it, but Time Worm Genesis, no, sorry, Time Worm, see these flimming biblical names that don't actually tie very well into the books. <laughs> Exodus was just fun. I just enjoyed it. Uh, questionable Hitler things aside, but it's, I feel it's just the one you have to excuse the Doctor playing as a Nazi, and Hitler being possessed by an alien, and you can get past it. Whereas in Genesis, it felt like every third page you were making an excuse for something to enjoy it. This was a lot less problematic. Not unproblematic, but a lot less problematic. I just... Yeah. yeah. I enjoyed it. Next. <laughs> Jim, how did you find it overall in your rereading that you've been having? Yeah, so um, really uh, quite enjoyable, as as um, Alistair says, that actually uh, I, I thought I would just skim through this. I only read this 12 months ago. I had the had the broad strokes of the plot fairly well established in my head, so I thought this was just a kind of, I don't know, reminding myself of the fine details. But actually I found myself really breezing through the book and in, enjoying it. Um, some problematic elements aside, as you say, but uh, it's it's really easy to read. It, it does have that kind of Terence Dix uh, target novelisation style, so you can breeze through it in... I think I've read this in two sittings, right? Um... And yeah, it flew by. I, I enjoyed myself with it. I think um, it would probably be better remembered if it was surrounded by better books. I know that sounds like a daft thing to say, but it's a very trad Doctor Who book in a way. And perhaps if it had been surrounded by something a bit more interesting, <laughs> uh, it would stand out Stand out as, um, oh, look, this is how you do like classic style Doctor Who in this exciting new range. Um, as it is, it feels like it's perhaps a bit too safe compared to 
what came before, if that makes sense. It perhaps needs to be a bit more new and exciting. Yeah. Um, but no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. And compared to you know, folk who were wanting to feel that new experience and were getting that absolute sugar rush of, of that from the first book because of, you know, instead of it being that regular Doctor we're used to, it's a hard crash of a different style of a Seventh Doctor. Uh, people might have went, that was that was too much, too fast. And going back to this might have felt a bit more comfortable and comforting to, to fans to experience a Doctor who's, you know, still quite similar to what was in the TV show, but it's just like we said about being under the skies as a Nazi, um, some of the ways that Ace uh, behaves, you know, those seeds of their relationship being planted, it is probably how it should have been. And so it's a bit more comforting compared to that absolute um, hard turn to to what the series will go down to um, from the first book itself. So, yeah, um, I guess just on that note, uh, we did get some comments from Folk Online about this this book in particular. So I'll just read a few that we had. So we got Dan Pym, who's at DevonDan03 on Twitter, said it's the best book in the Time Worm series. And it's like one of uh, his favourites from the range, having loved the um, SSGB and the Len Dayton vibes about it. But then he also loves the alternative altered history plots in general. Interesting that Uncle Tenant's love of revisiting the war game starts so early in the original novels. Which, yeah. It's not the first it's, time. It's not the only time, sorry, is it? It's the first time and not the only time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's the... Yeah. You wouldn't think it to be someone who brought the actual villains into creation to do it. You'd think it would be one of the fanboy writers to, to absolutely wire in with a villain from 20-odd year ago. But yeah. Uh, we also had uh, John J.D. David um, at Marius Kane on Twitter saying, one of my absolute favourite books. I'm a massive fan of alternate history books and this is a great one. Loved every minute of it. I remember it coming out in 1991, just before I headed back to my school uh, for my final year at sixth form. So the, there's people who were growing up during the wilderness years at that age that, you know, Doctor Who ought to have been there for them in that way. And it still was, just in, in that book form. Um, now, I had one or two, I'll just read from Facebook we had as well, um, from the Virgin New Adventures group that exists over there. Lots of people were big fans of... Um, Tenant Sticks' style basically is is the big part of it. Uh, Tony Green said uh, it was great. I enjoyed uh, our first episode uh, today. Um, Although they haven't actually read Genesis because the reviews put them off, but they're currently enjoying Exodus a lot. Uh, They've only read uh, six new adventures uh, at the moment, uh, but uh, I'm looking forward to collect more, and at least the ones that don't cost as much as a second-hand car, which, yeah, just don't buy Long Barrel. Um, there's PDFs available out there. <laughs> there's much better ways to get it. Um, John Hubbard as well said, I think this was the single best entry in the new adventure range. It's a pity it's only the second one as there was nowhere else to go after this. I don't think I would say it's the, the, the best, but I would say it's it's a solid, solid entry um, that or if it was the first one and we did a, some basic introduction to the Time Worm, I think more people would have probably caught on to this series. Um, yeah, 
it would have been a nice comfortable start to the lane into where it goes down the line but yeah that was some of the comments that we got from some folk uh, if you do want to get in touch with your own comments about um, the podcast and indeed our next book which is Time Worm Revelation yeah Apocalypse Apocalypse Apocalypse. I, I just keep wishing it is because because apocalypse. No, we were saying this just before we started recording. I I read this last year and I don't remember anything about apocalypse, which is probably quite telling. <laughs> well, if you remember more than us about time when apocalypse, please do write into us at too broad too deep, and that's with the number two, um, pod on Twitter or Instagram and need Facebook. Or on our email as well, which is too broad too deep pod at gmail.com, and that's with the uh, word two T O O. But yeah, on that note, uh, thank you very much, Jim, for joining us on this episode. Oh, thank you for having me, it's been great. And thanks very much, Alistair, uh, for joining us always. Pleasure as always, Anthony. Thanks very much, everyone. See you soon. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Too Broad and Too Deep. You can get in touch with us on our email, which is toobroad2deeppod at gmail.com, and that's spelt with the word 2 T-O-O. You can also contact us on Twitter and Instagram at toobroad2deeppod, which is with the number 2. And we're also on Facebook with the page Doctor Who, Too Broad and Too Deep Podcast. Thanks again for listening.